We are also on Facebook. Just search for VOA Africa. This is VOA News via remote. I'm Tommy McNeil. Turkey has agreed to lift its opposition to Sweden and Finland joining NATO. Uh, breakthrough and an impasse clouding a leader's summit in Madrid amid Europe's worst security crisis in decades, triggered by the war in Ukraine. After urgent talks, Alliance Secretary General uh, Jen Stoltenberg said that uh, we now have an agreement that paves the way for Finland and Sweden to join NATO. Russia's invasion of Ukraine prompted Sweden and Finland to abet their long-held non-aligned status. But Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan had blocked the move, insisting the Nordic pair change their stance on Kurdish rebel groups that Turkey considers terrorist. The Swedish Prime Minister Magdalena Andersson told the AP that the membership should be completed uh, the sooner the better. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky accused Russia on Tuesday of becoming a terrorist state, carrying out daily terrorist acts, and urged Russia... Uh, the expulsion from the United States, uh, I should say the United Nations. In a virtual address to the U.N. Security Council, Zelensky urged the U.N. to establish an international tribunal to investigate the actions of Russian occupiers on Ukrainian soil and to hold the country accountable. And urging, urging Russia's ouster from the 193-member United Nations, Zelensky cited Article 6 of the U.N. Charter, which states that a member which has persistently violated the principles contained in the present charter may be expelled from the organization by the General Assembly upon the recommendation of the Security Council. U.S. health officials are expanding the group of people recommended to get vaccinated against the monkeypox virus. They also say they're providing more monkeypox vaccine, working to expand testing and taking other steps to try to get ahead of the outbreak. As of Tuesday, the U.S. had identified 306 cases in 27 states in the District of Columbia. This is VOA News. Another victim has died after migrants are abandoned in a tractor trailer in San Antonio, Texas. Heat. AP correspondent Mike Gracia with those details. Death toll from a tractor trailer packed with migrants that was found abandoned in stifling San Antonio heat Monday evening rose to 51 Tuesday. Authorities say it was the deadliest tragedy in a migrant smuggling case in U.S. history. More than a dozen people, including four children, their bodies hot to the touch, were taken to area hospitals. Antonio Fernandez, CEO of Catholic Charity San Antonio, tells the Associated Press he visited in a local hospital. We asked if she was from Guatemala because we have been told that there were people from Guatemala and she actually nodded yes. The Mexico Consul General in San Antonio said among the dead, 27 are believed to be of Mexican origin. U.S. Representative Henry Cuellar of Texas told the AP the driver of the truck and two other people were arrested. I'm Mike Gracia. In New York, Jelaine Maxwell was sentenced to 20 years in prison for helping the late financier Jeffrey Epstein sexually abuse underage girls more from AP's Ed Donahue. Epstein committed suicide in 2019, and prosecutors say he couldn't have sexually abused children without the help of Maxwell, his longtime companion. Brad Edwards represents 60 Epstein victims. He says Maxwell's sentence should have been more. On a very conservative indictment, she's getting 20 years. So that doesn't sound lucky, but in the course and scope of what she did, it is. Maxwell's attorney, Bobby Sternheim, says she will appeal. Even before she stepped forward into this courthouse she was being tried and convicted 
in the court of public opinion. In court, Maxwell blamed Epstein, saying meeting him was the greatest regret of her life. I'm Ed Donahue. An explosive testimony, the House panel investigating the Capitol riot, a key Trump White House aide has described Donald Trump's outbursts over the January 6th itself and failing a bid to claim the election fraud. Cassidy Hutchinson was at the ellipse when the president was said to address backers whom he had been told were armed. He didn't care, ordering the Secret Service to remove metal detectors and, quote, let my people in. They're not here to hurt me. Take the effing bags away. After the speech, the president wanted to go to the Capitol. When lead Secret Service agent Robert Engel refused, Hutchinson says a White House official told her the president lunged for his limo steering wheel. That's AP correspondent Sagar Magani reporting. More at VOANews.com. Via remotes, I'm Tommy McNeil. VOA News. Wednesday, June 29th, and this is VOA's International Edition. I am Chinedorfo in Washington. Coming up in the next half hour, the French president denounces Russia's strike on a shopping mall in Ukraine as a, quote, new war crime, unquote. The city of Dnipro is one of the main hubs and main locations now for all the internally displaced people from the east regions. Britain rejects Scotland's plan for another independence referendum next year. The UK government has responded to the First Minister Nicola Sturgeon's. The position hasn't changed, that now is not the time for another referendum. And the UN says more than 266,000 violations were committed against children in global armed conflicts. We'll have these stories and more next on International Edition. Stay tuned. France's President Emmanuel Macron has denounced Russia's ferry airstrike on a crowded shopping mall in Ukraine as a, quote, new war crime, unquote, and vowed the West's support for Kyiv will not waver. Macron said Tuesday that Moscow, quote, cannot and should not, unquote, win the war. This strike killed at least 18 people in the central city of Kramanchak. Also Tuesday, Turkey lifted its objections to Sweden and Finland joining NATO ahead of an alliance summit in Madrid. BOA's Michael Lippin speaks with reporter Anna Chanikova about the latest fighting in the country. We just received information just a couple of minutes ago about new attacks on the city of Dnipro. I would just remind that the city of Dnipro is one of the main hubs and main locations now for all the internally displaced people from the east regions. So very, very big amount of people is now located in there. Also, Russian forces continue to attack Kharkiv and continue to attack Mykolaiv. And as of now, we know about at least four people dead in Kharkiv after yesterday's evening attack, and at least 19 were injured. When you mentioned uh, that in Dnipro you have many people who are internally displaced who might have been the victims of the latest rocket attacks, where did they come from? People there are mostly from Luhansk region, Donetsk region, and Kharkiv region. We know that a lot of people from the area of Izum and other little villages around and little towns around are now located there. And we know that basically Dnipro is the first point where people could evacuate. So I should say that the whole east front line, so people from the front line areas, a lot of them are staying in Dnipro at the moment. 
Dance reporter Anna Chernikova speaking with VOA's Michael Lippitt. Scottish First Minister Nicola Sturgeon has told lawmakers in Edinburgh that she plans to hold a fresh referendum on Scottish independence on October 19, 2023. Scottish voters rejected independence in the 2014 referendum. The UK had said the issue was settled in 2014 vote. Scotland's government requests a special order from Prime Minister Boris Johnson to legally hold a referendum. Sturgeon says she will ask the UK Supreme Court to rule on the Scottish government's right to hold a vote if Johnson does not give the go-ahead. The UK and Scottish governments should be sitting down together, responsibly agreeing a process, including a Section 30 order, that allows the Scottish people to decide. That would be the democratic way to proceed. It would be based on precedent, and it would put the legal basis of a referendum beyond any doubt. That's why I am writing to the Prime Minister today to inform him of the content of this statement. And in that letter, I will also make clear that I am ready and willing to negotiate the terms of a Section 30 order with him. That's Scotland's First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon. Scotland's semi-autonomous government said Britain's departure from the European Union, which was opposed by a majority of Scots, means the question must be put to a second vote. PM Johnson has previously refused to issue a, quote, Section 30, unquote, order, which gives authority to the Scottish Parliament to hold a referendum. For more on reactions from the British government, I spoke with VOA's Henry Ridgewell. The UK government has responded to the First Minister Nicola Sturgeon's statements that she will stage another referendum, saying that the position hasn't changed, that now is not the time for another referendum. It's eight years since the last one that asked, should Scotland become an independent country? Scots voted 55% to remain part of the United Kingdom. And Boris Johnson's government says that should stand for much longer. That should stand for a generation. And now is not the time for another referendum. They also say that they believe that the British constitution, power of that constitution lies solely in London, in Westminster, with the UK government. And it is not within the power of First Minister Nicola Sturgeon of Scotland to call her own referendum on independence. Has anything changed from uh, about eight years ago when this was held? And does the First Minister feel that the tide has somewhat changed, that the Scots will now have a change of mind and overwhelmingly vote for independence? Well, Nicola Sturgeon has made no secret of her wish to have an independent Scotland. It is the Scottish National Party's raison d'etre, really, of its political campaign to become an independent and free nation. What they believe, what she believes has changed since that 2014 referendum is really summed up in one word, Brexit. Scotland voted around 60% in favour of staying within the European Union, compared to 52% who voted across the United Kingdom to leave. And that has always been a bitter issue in Scotland, the fact that they were forced out of the European Union against their will. And what we've seen in opinion polls since that EU referendum in 2016 is uh, just about steady majority, only just over 50 percent of people in favour of becoming an independent country. And that shift happened after the EU referendum. We've also seen dissatisfaction in Scotland with the government of Boris Johnson uh, across the country 
he is unpopular at the moment, but especially in Scotland, uh, opinion polls show that popularity of Johnson is low. And so I think Nicola Sturgeon feels that now is the moment, the combination of British government that's imposing certain conditions on Scotland that Scottish people don't like, an unpopular prime minister in London, a lingering wish among some Scottish people to remain part of the European Union. Perhaps she feels that this is the last moment, the, the best moment to catch that wind in the sails of Scottish independence and try to get the process done. But, of course, there are many questions over how that campaign will stand up, not least in terms of the Scottish economy. That's VOA's Henry Widgewell. The UN Children's Fund says more than 266,000 violations were committed against children in armed conflict between 2005 and 2020. Lisa Schlein reports for VOA from Geneva. An analysis of more than 30 conflicts across Africa, Asia, the Middle East, and Latin America finds children continue to bear the brunt of war and are forced to endure what it calls unspeakable horrors. Authors of a report on the subject say the figure in the report represents just a fraction of the violations believed to have occurred and does not reflect the magnitude of the crimes committed against children caught in conflict. Tasha Gill is UNICEF's Senior Advisor, Child Protection in Emergencies. She says children are victims of a staggering average of 71 verified grave violations every day. She says the report documents the killing and maiming of more than 104,000 children in conflict. Between 2016 and 2020, 82% of all verified child casualties occurred in only five situations. Afghanistan, Israel and the state of Palestine, Syria, Yemen, and Somalia. It is also important to note that many children experience more than one violation, increasing their vulnerability. She notes abduction often leads to other violations, such as recruitment and sexual violence. The report has verified at least 25,700 child abductions by parties to conflict and more than 93,000 children recruited as soldiers by all parties to conflict. Additionally, the report says children have been raped forcibly married and sexually exploited, with at least 14,200 children also having been subjected to other forms of sexual violence. Gill calls sexual violence against children the most underreported of all violations. Sexual violence does occur against children. It is used as a tactic of war. It is one of the lowest numbers because of the access issues, but also the stigma and fear attached to reporting in contexts across the board. Children are often used um, for many different reasons, which can be considered deliberate targeting. Our request is that all parties immediately cease and desist from using children in armed conflicts. She notes children are recruited as soldiers, and many also are used by the warring parties as porters, sexual slaves, and messengers. She says the violations must stop. UNICEF is calling on parties to conflict and states to abide by their obligations under international humanitarian and human rights law and implement concrete measures to protect children. Agency officials say they have met with success in preventing some violations against children and putting a stop to others by engaging with those responsible for the violations. 
For example, over the past two decades, they say at least 170,000 children have been released from armed forces and armed groups. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. This week, medical and logistical teams from Doctors Without Borders or Medicines on Frontiers arrived in Afghanistan's mountainous Kost and Patika provinces, the worst affected areas of the June 21st earthquake. At least 1,000 people were killed and more than 1,600 others were injured in the quake, according to the Taliban government. Gaetan Drossard, MSF Operations Coordinator for Afghanistan, describes to VOA's Carol Van Dam what the teams found when they arrived. The earthquake had, well, definitely an impact on the infrastructure, so on the houses in the area. So a lot of houses in uh, some of the villages that were visited by the population lost their houses. We saw also that, as is the case in general in remote areas, Afghanistan is fully covered by the health facilities. So that in Afghanistan, the health system was weak in the first operation. You know, this world health system also there's a need to be adapted to the department in order to support the population with their primary health care needs. We also put in place, together with another medical organization, a capacity for an inpatient department in order to stabilize any patients that have been injured, you know, having a broken leg or a broken arm and that would need stabilization. And for the most severe one, we have been working with another organization to set up a referral system for them to have the possibility to be transferred to health facilities with more means. In the beginning, it was more these trauma injuries that your team was working on. But now what are you looking at for trying to help the Afghan residents who were most affected? So we will keep this uh, small IPD bed capacity for stabilization. So it's eight beds and with a division for men and women, you know that in Afghanistan it's also something we have to pay attention to if we want the health facility to be used by the population. And beside that, we are looking also to other medical needs such as acute watery diarrhea, which is new today uh, in Afghanistan. That's Gaetan Drossard, Doctors Without Borders Operations Coordinator of Afghanistan. He was speaking from Brussels with my colleague, Carol Van Dam. In other news, desperate families of migrants from Mexico and Central America frantically sought word of their loved ones Tuesday. This as authorities begin the grim task of identifying 50 people who died after being abandoned in a tractor trailer without air conditioning in the sweltering Texas heat. U.S. Representative Henry Coel of Texas told the Associated Press that it was the worst tragic to claim the lives of migrants smuggled across the border from Mexico. The driver of the truck and two other people were arrested. He said the truck had passed through the Border Patrol checkpoint northeast of Laredo, Texas on Interstate 35. The bodies were discovered Monday afternoon on the outskirts of San Antonio when a city worker heard a cry of help from the truck packed on a lonely back road and found the gruesome scene inside. For more on this story and other breaking news, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Remember to connect with us on social media. We are on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Search for VOA Africa. You're listening to VOA's International Edition. I am Chinedwafo in Washington. Record-breaking drought in Ethiopia has caused child malnutrition rates to soar in the northern Afar region, where the only referral hospitals say babies are dying within hours of arrival. Ethiopia's war with Tigran forces has left less than 10% of the region's clinics functioning and hospitals struggling to cope. Halima. Hey, hey, hey. 
Doctors at the only referral hospital in Ethiopia's Afar region say they have admitted 369 severely malnourished children in just the past three months. With only two pediatricians serving an area of more than one million people, Dupti General Hospital is overwhelmed with weak children and desperate mothers. Aina Kadri's one-year-old son has been on therapeutic feeding for two weeks. She says, when we came here, he wasn't eating food or drinking water. We were afraid he would die. The worst drought in the Horn of Africa in four decades has left millions of Ethiopians facing hunger and malnutrition. The UN says Afar's rate of admitted malnourished children jumped by 30% in March and then another 28% in April. The acting head of Dufti General Hospital, Dr. Muhammad Yusuf, says they've gone from admitting five children per month to five per day. They come after the patient deteriorated. So most of the patients die in our setup uh, after, after the arrival within two to three hours because they're already complicated. Since malnutrition is not the only uh, the problem, it's accompanied with other complications like pneumonia, anemia, diarrhea. <laughs> Ethiopian authorities said the war with Tigran forces left Afar's clinics looted, destroyed, and less than 10% functioning. That's forced even more people to seek care at hospitals like Duftis, where patients spill into the hallways and porches, many of them children. Amina Adam Ibrahim has been here for over two weeks with her sick baby. She says he's coughing, he has a high fever, and he cannot eat food. She says we do not know what's wrong with him. Michelle Saad is head of the UN's humanitarian office in Ethiopia. He says there is a struggle to meet health care needs. There is a need to like uh, either rehabilitate other health centers somewhere else within Afar or to create new ones, even if momentary. But so this is also something that we're trying to work on. I can tell you, unfortunately, it's not as fast as we would like to, but it's definitely uh, on the radar and, and we are following up on this. Meanwhile, Dr. Yusuf says some staff have given up and abandoned the hospital, making it even harder for remaining health workers to cope. Halima Athmani for VA News, Samara, Ethiopia. Thank you, Halima. Kenya is calling for urgent global action to address challenges facing oceans, seas and the marine environment. Speaking in Lisbon, Portugal, during the opening plenary session of the Second United Nations Ocean Conference, President Huru Kenyatta said the world needs to work on tangible interventions to save the oceans. Reporter Marianne Ojiambo has the details. The five-day United Nations gathering, which is co-organized by the governments of Portugal and Kenya, is expected to deliver science-driven innovations and solutions to protect the world's oceans. Kenya's President Uhuru Kenyatta co-chaired the opening plenary session of the second United Nations Ocean Conference in Lisbon. He told the 5,000 advocates and world leaders gathered there that many of the UN Sustainable Development Goals, or SDGs, lack financial needed support. Kenyatta said the most underfunded of them all is SDG 14, which regards protection of the world's oceans. It is our expectation, therefore, that this conference will shift gear from proposals to action, action that is driven by science, technology, and innovation. We expect to hear about solutions 
examples of nature-based solutions. We expect to understand the linkages between oceans, climate change and land-based action such as pollution. Overfishing in the oceans is threatening the stability of fish populations while dumping of toxic waste into the water is altering and destroying marine ecosystem. Marcelo Robelo de Souza is the president of Portugal. The right time, the right place, the right approach. The right place is in Portugal. The right time when the urgency of the pandemic or the, the war cannot be the excuse for forgetting the long-lasting structural challenges and their effect on our short-term, intense, unidimensional day-by-day living. The theme of the conference is the critical need for scientific knowledge and marine technology to build ocean resilience. UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres said plastics will overwhelm the world seas by 2050. According to the UN, more than 80 million tons of plastic are thrown into oceans each year. He urged governments to protect oceans and people in coastal areas from the impacts of this form of abuse and also from the climate crisis. I am Moreno Giambo in Sacramento, California. And to all our VOA listeners, please note we have moved our programs to a new website, voaafrica.com, from voanews.com. There you will find all your favorite VOA radio and TV programs and a whole lot more. Find us on voaafrica.com, and thanks for listening. This has been International Edition on The Voice of America. On behalf of the entire production team, Thank you so much for listening. Visit our website for in-depth coverage of world events and news 24 hours a day at voaafrica.com. Until next time, I am Chinedofo in Washington. Have a wonderful day. Next, an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government. The right to freedom of expression, including freedom of the press, faces profound challenges in our own hemisphere and around the world, declared Secretary of State Antony Blinken at the Media Summit of Americas in Los Angeles. He highlighted three common challenges in media and what the United States is doing to tackle them. In order to combat disinformation, the State Department has launched the first hub of the Digital Communication Network of the Americas, a network of journalists, civil society, and government officials who collectively can address and counter state-sponsored propaganda. They will also address journalist safety. Another challenge is the ongoing threats, harassment, and violence faced by members of the press across a hemisphere, said Secretary Blinken. At least 17 journalists have been killed in this hemisphere in this year, according to the UNESCO Observatory of Killed Journalists, including most recently Yesenia Molinedo and Sheila Johanna Garcia, the director, and a reporter of the news website El Varaz in Veracruz, Mexico, shot to death on May the 9th. No region in the world is more dangerous for journalists.
Governments are using legislation to quash free expression, as seen in the recent slate of restrictions adopted by El Salvador in the spring. In Cuba, Nicaragua, Venezuela, the simple act of carrying out investigative journalism is a crime. In response, the United States is working across the region to strengthen the rule of law and train judges and prosecutors to investigate and prosecute such attacks. USAID will provide up to $9 million to support a Global Defamation Defense Fund for journalists, which will offer liability coverage for reporters and news organizations targeted with unjust litigation. And the State Department is investing up to $3.5 million to launch a journalism protection platform that will protect and train journalists under threat. Third, the U.S. is working to make independent media more sustainable, said Secretary Blinken. We've committed $30 million to the International Fund for Public Interest Media, which will focus on assisting media and resource poor and unstable settings, and $5 million to improve the financial viability of independent media outlets. A free, independent press across the Western Hemisphere is more important now than ever, said Secretary Blinken, for the well-being of our people, for the well-being of our communities, and for the well-being of our democracies. That was an editorial reflecting the views of the United States government.